Hi, this is Chris Gonnerman, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 22, the PCs complete their mission to assassinate Belloc, and what a resounding success it is, too. Not only do they achieve a flawless victory, but the dice gods favor them even after the combat is over. It turns out that despite their unlicensed proactivity, the Lord Rabbit is pleased with their initiative. Actually, pleased is an understatement. The Alderman considers the elimination of Captain Belloc to be such a triumph that he gifts the companions with a valuable magical item, a special pair of gloves that once belonged to another church member. Finally, Lord Rabbit tells Yellowfly that a member of the church wants to meet with him. He believes a promotion might be in the man's near future. The episode ends with that meeting, which occurs at a little fishing grotto just west of Silmoral. It turns out that the person interested in speaking with Yellowfly is not there to offer him a promotion. In fact, it isn't even a church member, or at least, it's not the kind they expected. It is Sister Erinesse, the High Priestess of the Church of the Sacred Flame. We'll get back to that meeting with the High Priestess Erinesse in a few minutes, but first, there's a few little things we need to do. Let's begin with the Lord Rabbit's gift. It's a pair of Gauntlets of Dexterity. I found this item in the AD&D 2nd Edition Dungeon Master's Guide, if you're interested in reading the full description. But, in short, here's what they do. The gloves increase overall dexterity by 1-4 to four points, depending on the wearer's natural score. The higher the dex score to begin with, the smaller the improvement. There's a second power, too. Wearing the gloves enables a non-thief character to pick pockets or open locks as if they were a 4th level thief. This is how the Lord Rabbit used them throughout most of his career, by the way, and they are a part of the reason for his success in the Church Thieves Guild. If the gloves are worn by someone who is actually of the Thief class, they increase these two abilities by 10%. After a little consideration, and I do realize this might drive Min Maxers crazy, I thought that the gloves would be best used by Shawnee. They'll take her dexterity score from a 16 to a 17, which will not actually provide any additional bonus. But I'm thinking of those two skill increases and Shawnee's long game, and, of course, what makes sense for the story. Okay, with that decision made, we're on to the last item, Catsbane's level up. Neither the young mage nor Shawnee participated directly in the last episode, but the whole party shared in the risk when I rolled for Lord Rabbit's reaction check, and that could have had serious consequences if I'd rolled badly, so I'm allowing the XP credit this time. Alright, today Catsbane reaches level 3, and you know what that means, right? He gets a second level spell. I'll save that for last. Let's start with stat increase checks. Here goes. Rolling a d6 and looking for a 6 as I try for... Strength. I've got a 4. Intelligence. Hmm, a 2. Wisdom. A 5. Close. 
Dexterity. A three. Uh-oh, I'm starting to lose my natural optimism. Constitution. A one. Charisma. Last chance. A two. Yeah, somehow, I kind of knew it. Well, hopefully we'll make it up with new hit points. Catsbane has just six of them currently, adding a d4. Ah, oh, dang it, I got a two. He goes up to an eight, that's not great. Well, the last roll might just save all. There are 12 listings in the basic rules for second level magic user spells. There are no bad spells on the list, but to keep things interesting for folks who have listened to season one, if the die indicates a spell that a previous PC has had, I'll create a special expansion table and borrow from the advanced D&D rules. Here's the roll. A nine. What's that? Oh, okay. I think I like this. Catsbane has learned the spell Mirror Image. The spell creates one to four false images of the caster, and each image can essentially soak up a single hit. It's a powerful protection spell, really, and to be honest, Catsbane needs it. I wonder how he learned this new spell. Did it just pop into his mind? I'm going to say that, flush with confidence from their victory over Belloc, Catsbane demanded a final boom from the extraplanar creature he gets his other powers from. And this feels a little bit creatively lazy, so going forward, I'll come up with a new way for Catsbane to learn new spells, in a way that makes good narrative sense. Huh. Funny, in a game it wouldn't bother me, but since this podcast is also partly a dark fantasy fiction, I think it is best that I try to come up with a logical rationale. I've got something in mind, but, well, we'll just see where the story goes. Chapter 23, Part 1, Day 70, Afternoon, Party Status, Yellowfly, 19 of 19 hit points, Cole, 18 of 18, Shawnee, 13 of 13, Catsbane, 8 of 8, Spells Available, Catsbane has memorized, read languages, and magic missile. You're saying he stole this holy symbol from you? asked Shawnee, confused. Sister Araness shook her head. Not exactly. He confiscated it. I think he could tell it was important and valuable, and thought it potential leverage over me or the Church of the Sacred Flame. How could he do that? I'm not sure. Perhaps he wasn't either. But I believe the man had an intuition for this sort of thing. Earlier, the High Priestess had explained that she wished to hire the Companions to help her retrieve a holy symbol that Bellic had found in the church's basement. When they asked how she had found them, Araness had said the Church of Sidal had a long-standing relationship with the followers of Chartoon. Unlike the Church of Vesaluna, she had explained, they had no issue existing alongside the other faiths. We'll expect 10% of the fee up front, said Yellowfly, extending his hand. Araness took his hand and they were about to shake on the deal when Catsbane chimed in. Ah, there, there's one more thing. Yellowfly shot him a look of curiosity mingled with irritation. There is? Then what would that be? He asked. In addition to the fee we've negotiated, I'd like to have access to your library, especially sections containing any books or scrolls on metaphysics, or extraplanar study, or demonology... Demonology? Well, I hadn't expected that. But I also don't have any real objections, either. I agree to the terms. You have a deal. Yellowfly shrugged, and, since he was still holding the woman's hand, he shook it. Deal. You have our service, then, on my word. The priestess and her entourage of guild members had then taken their leave. 
for the sake of secrecy, it had been prearranged that Yellowfly and his companions would wait a further three hours after the visitors had departed. And so, the sun had already begun to set by the time they made their way back to the road and followed it east toward the city. Shortly after the others had left, Catsbane had explained, My apologies, Yellowfly, but I am starved for things to read, and I fear I will not be able to advance my skill much farther without them. Uh, there's also the matter of that wax seal. You might not be concerned, but frankly I am, and I wish to learn more. On the way back, they passed by several farms. Shawnee noted that some of the cows, which had been standing in their fields in the morning, were now laying down. What a bunch of lazy workers, she laughed. Is it not a bit early to call it a day? Although she was joking, Yellowfly answered her question earnestly. It means it's going to rain. Have you never been taught that? No, I'm not much of a farm girl, you know. You've probably never even been to a farm. I knew a boy once. Well, that's a story you'll need to buy me a drink to hear. Anyway, we have our own expert. Cole, you grew up on a farm, right? That's right. We grew potatoes, carrots, onions, turnips, and half a dozen other crops. Raised chickens and goats and pigs, too. And before you ask, yes, we did have a milk cow. So, is it true? Oh, absolutely, replied Cole. Cows lie down when it's about to rain. And when it's going to be sunny, or hot, or snow, or windy. It's just a folktale fly. Where'd you hear that old road apple of wisdom, anyway? I, ugh, you know I always thought that was true. <laughs> Although the two men chuckled and smiled good-naturedly at each other, someone who knew Cole very well would have noticed that something was bothering him. If Tamlin had been there, he would have seen it. The truth was that Cole was struggling with the way his companions, no, not just them, he had to include himself here, the way he and his companions had been celebrating their total victory over what Cole considered objective wickedness. Killing Bellic made the world a better place, he didn't doubt that, but nobody had spared a thought or a word for the working girl who had died along with the captain. In the end, he had justified it in his own way. Maybe the others had done the same. Maybe they didn't need to in order to be at peace with themselves. What would Tam have thought about it? He honestly didn't know, but he knew he needed his old friend's guidance. He tried to imagine Tam's voice in his head saying the things he wanted to hear. Sometimes it's righteous to sacrifice the few in the interest of the many, Cole, he imagined Tam's voice saying. It doesn't mean you should not feel the loss, but there is such a thing as the greater good. I'm sure you can remember a time, on the farm maybe, when you had to do such a thing. Cole thought back to his youth, and he remembered. Dramatis Personae Cole It was one of Cole's oldest memories. He was probably just five or six years old when it happened. He remembered that Krell had put a dead mouse in one of his boots that same day. The dead mouse wasn't the memorable part. Krell pulled this particular joke every couple of months. No, Cole remembered this day for a different reason. His mother had separated one of the pigs from the others and now kept it alone in its own little pen. Daisy had been acting strangely lately. Normally full of energy, she had been tired of late. She had almost completely stopped eating, too. Cole's mom had some experience with this kind of thing, and had wisely removed Daisy from the other animals. She suspected that the pig had contracted Blackfoot, and the disease was contagious amongst the other animals. Cole didn't know anything about diseases, but he was a big-hearted boy and couldn't bear to see Daisy seeming so depressed and being left alone. So he had spent all his free time with her. Eventually, it became clear that it was indeed Blackfoot that Daisy was suffering from. Once this was apparent, his mother had had no choice. She had to put Daisy down or risk infection among the other livestock. Cole, of course, had not witnessed the killing, nor had he been there when they burned Daisy's body out in the field. 
All the same, he had cried and cried when they gave him the news. He had even hated them for having done it. His mother had calmly and kindly explained to Cole that it had been necessary, that sometimes adults had to do something bad to avoid something even worse. She had stroked his hair as she explained, and he had hugged her even as he weakly pounded his little fists at her. Krell, for his part, hadn't cried at all. He had just left and asked Cole where he expected to find a new girlfriend. I'd like you to join me on a journey into danger and mystery. Are you looking for an action and intrigue-packed solo RPG podcast? One that tells a compelling story and then pulls back the curtain. The Lone Adventurer is split 50-50. Half is a dramatic audiobook-style story set in a dark fantasy magitech world. And half is a step-by-step guide. A guide to how the drama has been created, how solo RPGs work, and how you can create solo adventures of your own. M. Guns gave this review. I have listened to a few different iterations of fantasy storytelling, and this one rates at the top, along with me, myself, and I. And Mr. Pizzle had this to say, Carl has really knocked it out of the park with this one. Amazing production, and pulls you into the story right off the bat. You can find The Lone Adventurer on the podcatcher of your choice, on YouTube, or at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. The adventure is just getting started. I hope you'll join me. Chapter 23 Part 2 Day 98 Evening Party Status The party's status is unchanged, with the exception of Catsbane, who has memorized Mirror Image in addition to his usual other two spells. Things did not progress quickly. Sister Araness's plan was slow, both by design and by necessity, and the winter season had truly begun by the time she was ready to act. The priestess had originally intended for one of Yellowfly's gang to take on the role of cleric and accompany her on visits to study the holy symbol held at the tower of the city watch. After the chaos surrounding Bellic's death mellowed, she hoped she would be granted permission to do so. Of course, she was hoping to do more than just that. The symbol was the property of the Church of the Sacred Flame, as far as she was concerned. When selecting which of Yellowfly's group to wear the cleric's disguise, Erinesse chose Shawnee. Truth be told, Shawnee wasn't her first choice. Catsbane would have made a more believable priest, but he was still technically wanted by the authorities. Walking into Carrick's lab in disguise was one thing. Entering the tower of the City Watch a month after the assassination of its captain was something else. Yellowfly would have been a good second choice, but there was a chance that the same guard who had manned the door when he and Tamlin had broken in would still be there. So Catsbane and Yellowfly were out. Cole's accent didn't preclude him from being a good candidate, but his physique did. Cole was just a little too brawny to make for a convincing man of the cloth, so it would have to be Shawnee. Her specific skill set, Aradess acknowledged, made up for her shortcomings. Catsbane's stipulation that he be allowed access to their libraries forced Aradness to change her plan a bit. Originally, she had only wanted one of Yellowfly's people living among the clerics in the church's dormitories. But in the end, she gave up and permitted Catsbane to also take on the guise of a newly sworn initiate. This left Yellowfly and Cole on the outside. Their job would be to provide any external help that was needed, and to provide covert security on the days Aranez visited the tower. It was understood that there were threats coming from both within and without the city guard. Over three weeks, Catsbane and Shawnee adopted a kind of routine. 
Each day they would attend morning hymns, then study scripture with the other initiates, an activity that Shawnee, being illiterate, hated. Then they would have several hours of duties. Shawnee swept floors and washed clothes. Catsbane helped in the kitchen. In the evenings they were permitted time for private meditation and prayer or reading. Catsbane always hurried off to study in the libraries. Shawnee counted the tedious minutes until they were allowed to go to bed. Once per week, the two of them accompanied Aranaz to the tower of the city watch. Two other clerics went with them. These were Eckhart, Master of Scrolls, and Terragrim, the Wise. Both were stodgy clerics of middle rank and advanced years. The two men had complementary expertise on subjects ranging from history to scripture, philosophy, and divine magic. On these visits, the instructions were simple. Observe, observe, observe. Remain silent and do nothing unless told to by Araness herself. Clerics of Sadal had a certain way of behaving and speaking, and after just a few weeks of living among the priests, Catsbane and Shawnee would not have truly adapted to their ways. It had been five days since their last visit to the tower, and Araness's plan was that the next one would be their last. A thin layer of snow covered the city now. The first dusting had come just a few days ago. Along with it had come an announcement by King Culfrey of a new head tax. It was no secret that the royal coffers had been substantially drained in an effort to rebuild the city's armory. Since Bellic's death, soldiers could often be seen mixed in among the regular patrols of guards. A number of them wore cheap quilted armor under their heavy winter cloaks, instead of the usual male hauberks. The public had not accepted this new tax with grace. Building walls now showed graffiti that decried Culfrey's new Tax on Snow. Commoners griped openly in the streets and taverns. On this particular evening, Catsbane was visiting one of the many small libraries on the second floor, as was his habit. He hadn't seen much of Shawnee, but he knew that his friend was not doing well. On the few brief occasions that they had managed to speak, she had only wanted to complain about the tedium. She described her dormitory mates as the dullest women alive or dead on all merit. Catsbane was not avoiding Shawnee. He would have been pleased to keep her company, but they were playing strangers. It would not benefit their disguise if the other priests saw them interacting regularly. So, hoping she could endure a little longer, Catsbane went about his business alone. This evening, he was returning to a collection of books he had found on abyssal symbolism. A gust of icy air struck him as he opened the door to the reading room, and there was movement from the inside near the back. A pair of clerics had been studying together, or so it appeared. They were sitting very close to each other. At the sound of the door, one of them got up and crossed the room, brushing past Catsbane and into the hallway beyond without looking up. Despite the room's low temperature, Catsbane noticed beads of perspiration on the cleric's brow as he hurried by. The other, still seated, continued to page slowly through a fat tome in front of her. As Catsbane entered, she raised her eyes. He was immediately struck by how beautiful they were. They were large and brown, and they shone, reflecting the light from her candle. The young woman was dressed as he was, in the garb of a novice. She favored him with a modest little smile. Catsbane did not smile back, but cleared his throat and nodded a curt greeting to her instead. <clears throat> Unfazed, she moistened her lips and smiled again. The window she sat by was open. That was the reason it was so cold in here. And, somehow distracted by the novice's lovely face, he had not noticed that a crow was perched on the sill. It was just by her shoulder. Catsbane wondered why she had not closed the shutters. Well, some people just aren't bothered by the cold, he thought. As he turned to go and collect some books, the crow cawed making him look again, then it flew off into the night. Catsbane would find himself unable to concentrate all that evening, but it was not the novice's pretty face that beleaguered his thoughts and upset his concentration. It was the crow. He usually trusted his memory. He had an excellent one. 
but on this occasion he doubted. He would have sworn that the crow had had light blue eyes, but that couldn't be. That was impossible. The thing that was once Sivan is a truly dangerous being. The party members have never had to face anything like it before. I hope they don't have to anytime soon either, as they wouldn't stand a chance. I wonder if any of this podcast's listeners have figured out what it is. Here's a little hint. This creature first appears in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual 1. Luckily, it doesn't yet know that Catsbane and Shawnee are, much as it is, imposters. However, it has noticed Catsbane's existence, and I'm a little worried about that. I think I need to roll to find out if the two PCs can maintain their disguise. I'd say that it's unlikely they would draw suspicion, but the Weeping Eye has its spies and the authorities are not completely blind either. I'm going to make a random encounters roll to find out. A 1 on a d6 will mean someone has grown suspicious of them. Furthermore, if anything delays their mission beyond the next few days, I'm going to roll again. Here goes. Hmm, well, okay. Chapter 23, Part 3, Day 98, Evening. While Catsbane tried to keep his attention on his research, and while Shawnee paced the cloister, wishing the time away, King Culfrey was making his way down to the dungeon. He hadn't been there in weeks, and found that, as he passed by the grimy walls with their crude basket sconces and flaming brands. He had missed the place. In his left hand, Culfrey held a tankard of strong dark ale, in his right, a fat turkey leg. Today he was not dressed in silk shirt and hose, nor was he accompanied by children. All that was for public appearances and portraiture. The brightly colored clothing made him look kind, he thought, as did the presence of children. Having the children around also made him look taller. Right now he was in a black leather jerkin, beautifully detailed with silver, and matching pants. He wore an elegant short sword in a scabbard on his hip, and it waggled behind him like a stiff tail. The sword was enchanted, his father had told him, when he was alive, and it was his birthright. Culfrey gave a few moments' thought to the memory of his parents, and then shrugged, tearing off a piece of the turkey leg with his teeth. He chewed as he walked, and eventually came to a thick door, guarded by a hulk of a man who must have weighed at least 250 pounds, if not three. The guard straightened up when he saw his liege approach. Your Majesty, he said thickly, staring at his boots. It's good to see you again, sire. It has been a while, ain't it? Door, ordered the king. The dungeon guard fell silent and obeyed turning a fat iron key in the lock and pulling open the heavy door. The king walked through the portal and descended a flight of stairs that took him to the dungeon's lowest level. Actually, if one listened to that old raisin, Carrick, there was something below this level, some ruin or other. Kalfi remembered being intrigued when the archmage had first told him about it, but then the elder man had become vague and boring and he had lost interest. Kalfi waited until he had fully descended and was on even ground before he raised his tankard to his lips to wash down the meat. This floor of the dungeon was something of a labyrinth, but he could have negotiated it with his eyes closed. Straight for a few minutes, then a left, then a right, straight ahead, and there was the destination, a door of oak reinforced with iron bands. The door had no lock and opened inward with a groan. It was complete black darkness within, so Culfrey set down his ale and availed himself of one of the torches in the hall before stepping through the door. Inside was a small square room, featureless save for a pair of empty sconces and a small arched tunnel set in the wall on the far side. The tunnel was so little and low it would have been difficult even to crawl through on hands and knees. 
Colfrey stuck his brand into one of the empty sconces and then retrieved his tankard. He waited for a few moments. When nothing happened, he sighed in frustration and looked about for something to throw down the little tunnel. He found no projectiles, but after a moment, he heard a scraping sound coming from within. He smiled to himself, thinking he really needed to come down here more often. Biting off another mouthful of turkey meat, he chewed as he waited. He smelled it before he saw it. A withered and naked figure scored across the back from whipping, filthy, bruised, and covered in both scabs and open sores. It barely looked human, but it was a man, one of those prisoners who had escaped the third day of blood and justice, only to be recaptured by Belloc. Belloc. The man had disappointed him in the end. It was hard to find reliable help, and that was the truth of it. The prisoner crawled halfway out of the tunnel before he could go no further. Colfrey knew that he was chained by both ankles to a ring set into the wall deeper inside the oubliette. The man looked up at Colfrey, blinking hard and squinting against the light of the torch. Water. He begged. He was missing half his teeth. Colfrey ignored this request, but was reminded to take a gulp of ale for himself. Sighing with satisfaction, he addressed the prisoner. Mmm. <sighs> You know, the Nepulix can barely add half to a half to make one. <laughs> but by Vesaluna, they can brew a good ale. The prisoner started to whimper, and then began to shuffle back into the oubliette. No, stay, and we will give you a drink. And you can have this too. <laughs> Here he flourished the turkey leg in the air as though it were a magic wand. It might as well have been to the prisoner, who was spellbound, and followed his every movement with watering eyes. You are from Nepul, are you not? The prisoner nodded and shook his head, somehow at the same time. He was, Colfrey noticed with disgust, dribbling on the floor. <sighs> you know, even true Silmorians aren't much better than you lot. Colfrey gave the ceiling a wry smile. They complain about the taxes. Oh yes, I know how they complain behind our back. But they are perfectly happy to enjoy the safety of our city walls. Colfrey started pacing back and forth in front of his audience of one. The old man's eyes never left the food. Colfrey had had a dog once who would do that. I'm afraid we have been too lax of late, and our merciful nature has been taken advantage of. He stopped pacing. The prisoner no longer amused him, and now Colfrey found him repulsive. Do you wonder at our visit? Do you suppose we came to bring you food and drink? No. Our new captain of the guard says you are ready to speak. Well then, speak! The old man did not speak, but instead began to whimper and beg even more desperately. <laughs> Colfrey normally enjoyed watching people grovel at his feet, but when the mood was gone, it was gone. He sneered. Nothing to say then? No? Cat got your tongue? Then you shall have nothing from us either. And with that, Colfrey left the room, taking his food and drink with him, and listening to the sobs of the old man decay and fade away as he walked back through the dungeon halls. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you're enjoying the show and would like to lend your support, there are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone who has supported the show in these ways. 
I'd like to share one of your generous reviews right now. This one is on Apple Podcasts, and it's from the Netherlands. So cool. It was posted by RPG Heroes. RPG Heroes writes, What a great concept. Old school D&D, gritty and serious, and solo. Presented in a tightly produced and entertaining way, with sound effects, some voices without overdoing it, and a refreshing change from a lot of actual D&D podcasts, it's not trying to be humorous. Give this a go if you're at all interested in OD&D. Wow, I see your review is from 2020, RPG Heroes. I'm sorry, I didn't see this until now. You know, Apple Podcasts hides reviews from countries that are not your own. It can be hard to find them, but I am glad I found yours, and I'm very grateful to you for writing it. You know, I still wonder, where are all the serious D&D shows? It's a mystery to me. While I'm all that over, I've got some wonderful voice talent to thank. Lyrica from the One Hour One-Offs podcast is back in the role of Sister Araness. Find Lyrica on Instagram at One Hour One-Offs or on Twitter at One Hour One-Offs. Catsbane is voiced by the always excellent Kyellen. Don't forget to check out his work on SoundCloud. It's free for anyone to use. If you want to listen to RPG-style soundtracks or use them for your home games, search for him on Spotify, Bandcamp, and other music stores. King Culfrey is played by the very talented David Cooper. Find David on socials as at that Dave Cooper and see him in the Netflix movie The Curse of Bridge Hollow and BBC on YouTube. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. It goes all the way back to the start of the show, and I update it about once per week. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hi, I'm Steve Morrison, and I'm a writer and game master who has combined my love of stories and tabletop gaming into a solo actual play series called Errant Adventures. Join me as I explore different stories in different genres using a variety of my favorite tabletop role-playing games. In Season 1, I use Ironsworn Starforged to discover the adventures of Lucius Tarquin in the dangerous space of the Forge. For Season 2, I tell a story inspired by the Black Company books in my own fantasy world. Join members of the mercenary company The Crest as they take contracts in the seaside city of Hartvale. I've got short runs of games like Colossal, Pilgrimage of the Sun Guard, and more on the way. Whether a long-form campaign or a short series, Errant Adventures features stories told at the speed of dice. So join me on the podcatcher of your choice as I discover where the story goes next.